The city of Hong Kong is no longer recognizable. That's what a number of locals had to say amid the anniversary of its handover from Britain to Beijing. On the other hand, China's Communist Party leader said the opposite, that the city has risen from the ashes. The world's largest naval exercise is underway in Hawaii. 26 nations are joining this year, looking to counter China's military aggression. Taiwan's foreign minister highlights his hopes for the island as it grapples under threat of invasion. Imposter social media accounts exposed by a new report. It says the accounts are posing as Texans to attack the state's rare earth industry online. And Shanghai Disney reopens to the public after a month's long closure. But some theme park goers say it's not the same. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Communist leader Xi Jinping is headed back to mainland China from Hong Kong. During his visit, he said the city had risen from the ashes. But few others seem to tell the same story. Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping left Hong Kong on Friday, concluding a rare visit to the global financial hub. While there, he swore in the city's new leader, John Lee. Hong Kong authorities deployed a massive security force during the trip, blocking roads and airspace. This is the first year that the anniversary of its handover to Beijing wasn't accompanied by protests, criticism or homegrown expressions of dissent. China's Xi said the city had overcome its challenges and had risen from the ashes. But a number of Hong Kongers said they felt there was little cause for celebration. I think in the past 20 years, so many major events have happened in Hong Kong, and the city has changed and we cannot go back. We can't regain that sense of happiness. Even with Xi coming, he cannot bring Hong Kong any happiness and bring about a proper sense of occasion. I think in my mind that, uh, and I think for many in Hong Kong, this is a city that is no longer recognizable. Uh, even five years ago, you uh, would expect that uh, July 1st marks actually a day of protest. Separately, a former law professor of the University of Hong Kong said Beijing has become the city's second government. I mean, basically, Hong Kong was one of the freest, uh, most open societies in Asia, even ranked as such for years. Uh, and so that's where the crackdown is occurring. So almost all the ingredients of an open society are under threat. The universities, the secondary schools, uh, you know, the broadcast media and so on. U.S. Congress member French Hill from Arkansas also chimed in, calling what the Chinese Communist Party has done in Hong Kong a shame. Uh the Chinese Communist Party turned their back on their 50-year transition commitment in a treaty uh, committed to by both Great Britain and, uh, and uh, the uh, Chinese government. And that's a shame. And I think it's another sign that China has turned their back on international law, international norms. Addressing Beijing's human rights violations in Hong Kong, Hill talked about the arrest of the city's bishop, Joseph Zen. It's just another a nail in the coffin of one of the most open, transparent, effective free market economies in the world to one that is uh, authoritarian, surveillance culture, a national security uh, law and set of rules that can't be really adjudicated in a fair court of law. So he added that Beijing's actions put international personnel at risk if they choose to stay in the jurisdiction. Here is what the British Prime Minister had to say to the 25th anniversary of Hong Kong's handover to Beijing. 
But on the 25th anniversary of the handover, we simply cannot avoid the fact that for some time now, Beijing has been failing to comply with its obligations, doing all we can to hold China to its commitments so that Hong Kong is once again run by the people of Hong Kong for the people of Hong Kong. Johnson said 120,000 Hong Kongers and their families have already started the process of getting a special UK passport called a BNO. It's short for British National Overseas Passport. Hong Kong has a population of 7.5 million. Continuing on our Hong Kong coverage, let's take a closer look at the situation today and why Beijing is accused of violating the city's promised freedoms. For more than 150 years, Hong Kong was a British colony. But in 1997, control of the territory was handed back to China. At the time, Beijing promised one country, two systems, meaning self-governance, freedoms and judicial independence, at least until 2047. But the Chinese regime has been chipping away at those promises. In 2003, authorities promised national security legislation that would have criminalized acts that go against the Chinese regime. 2019 mass protests broke out over an extradition bill that would send Hong Kongers charged with a crime to mainland China for trial. China's legal system is accused of ill-treatment and forced confessions. Following a heavy crackdown on the protesters, Beijing imposed a national security law in 2020 that jailed thousands of Hong Kong government critics. By that time, the city's government had become largely made up of pro-Beijing officials. On top of that, legislation was changed, so only so-called patriots, those loyal to the government, could have a voice. And in the latest development, former police officer John Lee was installed Friday as Hong Kong's chief executive. Lee is sanctioned by Washington for his role in implementing the security law. Chinese Communist regime leader Xi Jinping on Friday re-emphasized Beijing's control over Hong Kong, countering criticism that freedoms promised have been erased under Chinese rule. The world's largest international Navy exercise is underway in Hawaii. The U.S. is hosting the drill called RIMPAC 2022. This year, 26 nations are coming together to flex their military might. The drill has a number of goals including exercising a range of defense capabilities and helping promote a free and open Indo-Pacific. Many countries in that region are facing the pressure of a growing Chinese military. Participating countries are U.S. allies and partners from around the world, up north Canada, those from Europe, Britain, France, Denmark, Germany and the Netherlands, in the south, Mexico and Peru, across the ocean in Asia, South Korea, Japan, India, Malaysia and Thailand, and in the South Pacific, Australia and New Zealand. Next to the U.S., South Korea brought the largest arsenal to the event, followed by Australia. South Korea sent three ships, one submarine and over a thousand soldiers to the drill. Australia also sent three ships. Despite the long list of participants, Taiwan is not invited. That's despite the 2022 National Authorization Act calling for the U.S. to invite Taiwan to the drills as appropriate. The act is a defense spending blueprint for 2022 and has been signed into law. 
The invitation is part of an effort to help Taiwan maintain a sufficient self-defense capability. NTD reached out to the Pentagon for comment, but did not immediately receive a response. The drill is happening near the Hawaiian Islands in Southern California. It's set to wrap up in August. As Beijing keeps expanding its military, an island on the front line is finding itself under increasing pressure, Taiwan. Here's what Taiwan's foreign minister says he's hoping for in case of a Chinese invasion. NTD's Juliet Song has more on that. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. To Taiwan's top diplomat is rallying for international support a week after Beijing sent almost 30 fighter jets soaring near the island. If Taiwan is attacked unprovoked, our hope is that the federal democracies can rally around Taiwan and to deter the Chinese or to fight against the Chinese. And so far, we are uh, being we have been discussing with the U.S. government to see how we can reach this goal so that there are more democracies can find Taiwan as a force for good and worth supporting. Communist invasion from the mainland. Taiwan and China split during a civil war. But Beijing still sees Taiwan as part of its territory. It also has been threatening to take Taiwan back by force. That's despite Taiwan never having been ruled by the communist regime. The U.S. doesn't have formal diplomatic relations with Taiwan. But Washington is required by law to provide Taiwan with the means to defend itself. Taiwan's foreign minister says the island is trying to learn as much as possible from what has happened in Russia's war on Ukraine. So that Taiwan can be better prepared if another authoritarian country, that is China, uh, wants to launch a war against Taiwan. One key takeaway for him, China's growing authoritarian influence. They have been operating in East China Sea, in the Taiwan Strait, in the South China Sea, and they try to expand beyond the first island chain. Uh, the recent agreement signed between China and the Solomon Islands on the security agreement is something that has already awakened uh, other countries in the Pacific. The West has been ringing alarm bells about China's security deal with the Solomon Islands. Many fear it could allow China to operate a military base near Australia. And it's not just the Pacific. And if you look at the uh, African countries, uh, I think Europe, the United States and Japan together make more investment in Africa. But the Chinese influence, the authoritarian influence in Africa is so much more than all these democracies combined. As for South America, Wu says he thinks many countries there are more friendly to China these days than to the United States. Putting these aspects together, we see a China that may be much more threatening to Russia than Russia. Uh, and what China can come up with with its economic might or its military might can pose a direct threat to the U.S. partners and allies in uh, the West Pacific, including Japan, Taiwan, the Philippines, and etc. Wu says Taiwan has the determination to defend its democracy. But at the same time, the island needs friends. He's calling on fellow democracies to pay attention to the situation Taiwan is seeing and provide support. Juliet Song, NTD News. A new report is exposing imposters on social media. That's according to researchers from cybersecurity firm Mandiant on Tuesday. 
They say accounts on Twitter and Facebook have been posing as citizens from Texas and attacking a rare earth processing facility in the state run by mining company Linus. Though the criticism hasn't generated much engagement, researchers warn that Chinese propaganda is evolving and getting more sophisticated. They say it's a sign that China may spare no effort to weaken its Western rivals in the rare earth industry. The industry Beijing is using to strengthening its international alliances. Mandian said in a report that most of the Twitter accounts were created in clusters, indicating a possible batch creation by a single source. And now the network is working in seven languages across 30 platforms with cross-promotion. Kenton Tabo is a China fellow at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab. She said the increasing sophistication of Beijing's narratives reflects its expanding ambitions. Rare earth elements are used to make a wide range of consumer tech products, from smartphones to hybrid vehicles. The materials are also vital for producing defense and military equipment, including communications gear, weapons and aircraft. With China eyeing and buying vast amounts of U.S. agricultural infrastructure, a new bill in Congress is looking to safeguard U.S. farms, food and supply chains. It would prevent companies linked to foreign adversaries, like China, from buying up U.S. farmland. Congress members Elise Stefanik and Rick Crawford are introducing a bill. During the last decade, Chinese firms have bought up American agriculture companies and farmland, totaling millions of acres. If passed, the bill would blacklist China, Russia, Iran and North Korea from purchasing U.S. agriculture companies and agricultural biotechnology. The proposed rule would also add the Secretary of Agriculture to the U.S. Committee on Foreign Investment. The Secretary would report and address national security risks from foreign purchases to the committee. Next, we head to Shanghai Disney. The famed theme park reopened on June 30th. That date marks one month since Shanghai lifted its two-month COVID-19 lockdown. Most businesses in Shanghai have already resumed operations, but Disney only joined the most recent reopening wave. Students say they're happy the park will reopen before they return to school. But one person expressed that it won't quite be the same. Wherever we go, we have to scan our health codes. And we need to calculate the timing so we know when we need to take a nucleic acid test. So there are still a lot of inconveniences. We still have to wear masks when going out. The park has been totally shut down for more than three months this year due to China's zero COVID-19 policy. Disney has seen a drastic decline in its seasonal revenue. Management pointed out that the closure of the Shanghai Park could end in a huge loss, as much as $350 million over three months. Coming up, the shadow of China's military threat is looming over Taiwan, a microchip-making powerhouse. Supply chain concerns over the tiny but critical devices are on the rise as tension soars between Beijing and Taipei. But news from another nation may be starting to ease those fears. And a new report gives more details on microchip making, focused on those made in China. Can the country meet its own demand? Find out more after the break here on China in Focus.
Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Beyer. South Korean tech giant Samsung is raising the bar on microchips. The company said Thursday it has started mass-producing chips with advanced 3-nanometer technology. It's the first to do so globally. This as it seeks new clients and works to catch up with Taiwanese rival TSMC in contract chip manufacturing. In a global first, Samsung said on Tuesday it's begun mass production of the most advanced microchip yet, beating chip-making frontrunner Taiwan's TMSC to the punch. For decades, these chips, which can be used as mobile processors and in high-performance computing, have become faster and more power-efficient, get smaller, and the chips become more dense with parts. Currently, conventional chips use the 5-nanometer design. But Samsung said its newly developed 3-nanometer process is almost twice as power-efficient and is said to improve performance by more than 20 percent. Samsung is aiming to overtake TSMC as the world's top chipmaker by 2030. But for now, the Taiwanese company, whose chips are used by Apple and Qualcomm, is far bigger, controlling about 54 percent of the global market. Samsung is a distant second with a 16.3 percent market share according to data provider Trendforce. Analysts say Samsung itself and Chinese companies are expected to be among the initial customers. But amid persistent global chip shortages, companies from automakers to appliance makers will be rushing to secure capacity. The development may spell good news for supply chain security. Right now, Taiwan produces more than 90 percent of the world's high-end microchips. But with the island under threat of takeover from Beijing, more high-end chips getting produced outside Taiwan could soothe nerves and boost confidence in the industry. More news from the microchip industry as U.S.-Taiwan relations take another step forward. Taiwanese manufacturer Global Wafer just announced plans to build a new microchip factory. The new plant will break ground in Sherman, Texas, revealed during the Select USA Investment Summit. The company's CEO told the summit that it would be the first facility of its kind in the U.S. The move is an exciting one for both Taiwan and the U.S. The Taiwan-based company produces silicon wafers, a material essential for making semiconductors. And both Taiwan and the U.S. play lead roles in global semiconductor production. The new project also further strengthens ties between Washington and Taipei, alongside the U.S.-Taiwan Initiative on 21st Century Trade. That project launched earlier this month. News of the new plant comes after Commerce Department Secretary Gina Raimondo ramped up pressure on Congress to approve the $5 billion investment before the Taiwanese company went elsewhere with a proposal. Taiwanese companies operating in the U.S. support over 19,000 jobs. Based on the latest data available from the end of 2019, Taiwan also dedicates nearly $160 million of annual R&D investment into those companies. What's more, the global wafer plant will help reduce microchip dependency on China-based manufacturers, something seen as a national security boost for both the U.S. and Taiwan. If China were to stop importing microchips or semiconductors, could it rely on its own production to fill demand? A new report from May says no. Microchip market research company IC Insights revealed only one in six chips used in China last year were actually made in China. And some of those China-made chips were actually produced by foreign companies with factories in China. 
excluding these chips as well, only one in 15 chips China uses are made in the country by domestic companies. But that level of output falls far short of the Chinese regime's goal. According to Beijing's Made in China 2025 program, as of 2020, more than half of the chips used in the country should be made at home. And in 2030, that rate should rise to 80 percent. The group of seven nations announced last weekend its plans to raise $600 billion over the next five years. That money will fund a global infrastructure program. The plan is to provide a positive alternative to the accused debt traps offered by top competitor China. Entities Stephania Cox spoke with China economic analyst Antonio Graceffel to get his take. The G7's Global Investment and Infrastructure Partnership was launched Sunday, aiming to raise $600 billion over the next five years to support projects in developing countries. The hope is that it'll provide a counterweight to China's Belt and Road Initiative criticized by Western countries as a debt trap. Everyone is now getting on board and understanding this China uh, juggernaut that's just gobbling up all these developing countries. These countries that are heavily in debt to China will also vote with China in the UN. So when we're asking for a vote, for example, to condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, you'll notice that a lot of the countries that abstained are countries who owe a lot of money to China. But China economic analyst Antonio Graceffo says the G7's plan may not be enough to act as a significant counter to China's program. The Belt and Road Initiative is tremendous. It now uh, encompasses more than 100 nations. Uh, it's valued in the trillions of dollars, you know, at least a trillion, depending upon who's counting, half a trillion, a trillion. So the U.S. is putting up $200 billion, all the other G7 partners and uh, private companies as well are putting up the other part. So it's going to total six. $600 billion, which is considerably less than the Belt and Road. So I feel like it's a very good idea to give uh, viable alternatives to nations, particularly in Africa and developing countries. However, I just don't see the scale. Graceffo says that when low- to mid-income countries need funds, they usually go to traditional lenders, such as the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, or the Paris Club. But... If these countries cannot secure traditional financing, they will go to China. China's like the lender of last resort. They don't, they don't ask any questions. They don't ask for improvements of democracy. They don't ask for transparency, and they just give away these loans. But these loans have very high rates of interest, which is the debt trap idea. So these countries, of course, are looking for reasonable alternatives to borrowing from China. The White House says the G7 program will prioritize values-driven, high-impact, and transparent projects. But Graceffo says that though the G7 could provide better terms, it doesn't rival the amount China is willing to loan out. That's all for today's China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow. Presenting the heritage of traditional Chinese martial arts, promoting martial ethics, and reviving the true tradition. The 2022 NTD International Traditional Chinese Martial Arts Competition Preliminaries will be held in New York and Taiwan. On August 28th, the finals will be broadcast live online worldwide. Registration hotline 188-477-9228. For more information, please visit martialarts.ntdtv.com.